I feel very grateful and honored because people call me when they're in crises usually. I mean, my the spirit behind what I do, like the reason why I wrote the book is because I'm trying to get people to think in advance. But as you were saying, most people don't. And they call me in the time of crisis when things were not planned proactively and stuff. And you know, I feel very honored and I'm sure you do too in your work. It's, people are very vulnerable when they reach out to me. They're in a very difficult situation. Welcome to the Nursing Home Podcast, your go-to source for professional insights in the long-term care industry. Hear from leaders and experts as they share current and practical insights to help make the most of your day. I'm a long-term care financial specialist. What that means is I help people plan for the inevitable. Mm -hmm. Nobody wants to think about getting old, but it's possible that someday we might need a little bit of care. Here's your host, nursing home administrator turned podcaster, Shmuel Septimus. Welcome to another live cast of the Nursing Home Podcast, the podcast that focuses exclusively on the nursing home space, where we try to explain the concepts that are going on, what professionals, residents, seniors, what what it's really like to live and interact in this space in terms that everyone can understand, professionals and laymen alike, whether or not you work in a nursing home, have ever been in a nursing home, or you only know about it from the news, we're here to share real and relevant information that should be helpful to you. So today we are going to discuss very interest, a range of interesting topics, actually. But before we even get to that, I would love my honor to introduce today's guest. Today's guest is the author of Plan for Aging Well, has a master's degree in social work, is a certified Alzheimer's disease and treatment specialist, specialist, excuse me, and is licensed in both Quebec and California. She provides media commentary throughout the U.S. and Canada. And it is my pleasure to introduce Stephanie Erickson to the Nursing Home Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Stephanie. Thank you. This is great. I've, I got connected with you because I saw, I see you doing these on LinkedIn and I found it very interesting, the conversations you were having. So that's why I reached out to you to be on because I think it's really important that we have these discussions. Yes, it definitely is. And thank you for watching and whoever else is watching right now. Appreciate you watching um, as well. So Stephanie, our listeners and viewers, uh, they know me already. I've shared enough. Um, they may not be familiar with uh, all of your work. Can you give them just a brief overview of your professional background and how you got to what it is that you do right now? And what is the professional path that got you there? Well, the professional path didn't start with seniors. I did uh, I wanted to be an English teacher, actually, got my degree okay. in English. And then while I was working in undergrad, I was working at a foster uh, home as a teacher, helping a teacher's assistant. And then that led me into social work. And then when I was in social work, I actually concentrated on children, youth, and families. And it wasn't until I was just kind of randomly moving cities and leaving one job that I was working with kids and just looking for any job in the new city in which I wanted to live that fell into the work of palliative care. And then a majority of my clients were seniors. And then that kind of started my path into the senior world. And when I moved to Montreal, I started right away in the world of seniors and in the particular specialty, which I do right now, I've been doing for 16 years full time. 
And my clinical practice is I do decision-making capacity assessments for people who have dementia for legal proceedings. And I'm an expert on contested files in which families are arguing over who should be in charge of the money, who should be in charge of making decisions. And then I come in and evaluate and give recommendations to the court. And I also have an online consulting business like this, just videos uh, for anyone in North America helping families navigate the difficulties that are involved in caregiving. Wow. Wow. So you that's an, took an interesting turn. Um, caring yeah. is at the core. Um, it didn't start off in the senior space, but you know, you're, you were guided into doing what you're doing. This is such a needed resource. Unfortunately, without having, I think the old people are always five or 10 years older than we are, right? <laughs> we're always like, you know, 30 year olds. Those are really old people. But then when we're in our 30s, you know, 40s is big and 60s, yeah. uh, you know, 60s is the new 20. So the point is that because of that, I mean, it's human psychology that we always think that we're, we're not there yet, that we put off decision-making, we put off conversations, we put off, unfortunately, planning, whether that means planning how the family is going to operate, how finance is going to operate, how our healthcare is going to operate. And that gets for some really sticky situations. Um, like you mentioned, you know, activating a healthcare proxy, power of attorney, which son is in charge of what, which one is in the will, which one's out of the will, write a will, um, all of these types of, of things. Um, and it's, and it's, it's wonderful that you have the opportunity to help guide families, uh, the residents, the seniors, um, and the facilities through some of these really sticky situations. And they can get quite sticky, as I'm sure you know. Yeah, they can. And I feel very grateful and honored because people call me when they're in crises, usually. I mean, my the spirit behind what I do, like the reason why I wrote the book is because I'm trying to get people to think in advance. But as you were saying, most people don't. And they call me in the time of crisis when things were not planned proactively and stuff. And, you know, I feel very honored and I'm sure you do too in your work. It's people are very vulnerable when they reach out to me. They're in very difficult situations and they, you know, they, they give me their trust basically and share with me some pretty scary details about things that are happening in their life and situations and family dynamics. And I'm always amazed, number one, at the resiliency of people and what they've been through and also the love and dedication that people have towards family members, even when their relationship history has been really poor and people still stick in there and to try and do what they feel is morally right and and care for someone and i'm always really amazed um mm -hmm. by my, my by the clients and the families with whom i work yeah um those are the positive cases that that do exist and i'm sure the ones who reach out to you are caring um as an administrator you know sometimes gotten involved of some really sticky situations where caring is not necessarily uh, the number one emotion that's there. I actually literally just got off the phone from someone who called for an attorney, for someone, I'm not going to share the details, um, but but for someone who's very and very well on in years and is having a challenge of people taking advantage of that person's age and trying to borrow some of the funds, if you will. So oh, this, I see that this, all yeah. the time. Yeah, yeah all the time. I, what does he need it for? What does she need it for anyway, right? You know, they're anyway in a nursing home if they are, or, you know, they have their 70 to 80 or whatever amount it is that they're allowed to keep. So 
this is what they would have wanted, even though that's not what they're expressing. And then you may have family members who will reach out to you. I don't know if you get this, but I've certainly seen this, where let's invoke their healthcare proxy or let's invoke their power of attorney so that we can make those decisions and then we can make better use of the funds than the resident themselves. And that's Yeah, well, and that, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, sometimes that's gaming the system. You know, obviously there is a point where that's appropriate, um, but sometimes it's, there's a very broad gray area, legitimately gray, and that's where it takes not just skill and expertise, but also having some sort of a moral backbone of even when you can get away with it either way, doing what you think is really best for everybody involved. And that's not a simple, that puts you in a tough spot. That's why we need people like you doing what you do. Yeah, and I really appreciate what we do in this province. I live in Quebec, and you can't just activate that healthcare proxy. There has to be a medical declaration of someone's inaptitude to make decisions, and then a social worker has to get involved, you know, basically agree with that medical declaration or come up with some other recommendations. And then we also evaluate the person that was named to make sure that they are the right person. And we bring in friends and family to make sure that the document was not you know, drafted under duress and that kind of things like we, we just about I won't get onto all the details, but there's a lot of factors that we evaluate. And it's great. And it's rare that I find someone not acting in a person's best interest, but it has happened. And in those moments, I'm so thankful that we have this procedure here, because it really does protect people. Amazing. Amazing. And you are right, most people are good people. <laughs> it is true. They are. Most people, most people really want what's best uh, you know, for the loved one, especially a parent, even if there may be decades, like you said, of a strange relationship, uh, maybe the children weren't necessarily always close to each other or to the parents. But in a time of need, many times you will see people, you know, getting together in ways that they would not have done in the past. And that's probably something beautiful that you get to witness as yeah. that happens um, in real time. Now, what are, let's talk about some of the things that we can do. Um, I don't like to say that residents and as we are all human beings and residents are us just a few years on uh, or seniors are us just a few years you know, ahead. What type of planning, what type of conversations can be started now when everybody is fully functioning, nobody even is thinking about senior care? Uh, at what point, I guess, is it too early or what's the earliest to have these conversations? But I guess before, what, what type of planning can be done to avoid some of these challenging conversations later on in life? There's so many different angles that I can go with that question because you asked it in a variety of ways. I mean, we can start conversations from very young, like my children, because of who I am and because of who my family is and the way that my grandparents are, my kids are already getting accustomed that people age and this is what families do and these are decisions that can be made. You know, my father died suddenly of a heart attack. My kids watched my sister and I go through that process. How do we manage that crisis? So from a very young age, we're getting messages about aging. And so I think that plays a lot into then what happens when we get older, when we actually have to like really think about what we want and putting it down in writing. I don't really think it's ever too soon, but most people start thinking about putting stuff in writing when they have kids. And I don't think it's about aging. I think it's more about a plan for the kids should something happen to the parents. But that usually is the beginning of a conversation. The error I think most people make is they have conversations about finances and they just draft these very um, nonspecific, generalized 
legal documents that aren't really particular to that person and that person's life, that person's family dynamics. And they're very um, non-dimensional, meaning that it's about my physical care. I don't want a DNR. I don't want tube feeding or, you know, those things. But there is no discussion and no planning about the other parts of who we are, our emotional self, our spiritual self, and really thinking about how we can meet those needs as well and including those things in the legal documents. And even beyond that, having discussions with our family about what's included and so that our families really understand who we are as a whole human being, a whole holistic person, who are we and how can we be supported as we start aging? Okay. Okay. I mean, you're getting into the the next conversation where I want to go, but even before that, so once we have children, it's important for these things to be laid out. And what's becoming clear as you're speaking is that we're accustomed to these, the guy on the street, right, is accustomed to these conversations being a will. When, when I die, what happens to my money? As long as that's taking that, most people don't take care of because it's like, you know, life insurance used to be called death insurance and they had a hard time selling it because we don't like to confront the fact that we will die, which, by the way, we will. So, Writing a will, people are reluctant as well because that means there's an end to all of this chasing of money. And at the end of the day, we we don't get buried with it. So, But even assuming that we did take care of that, there's that period of time, which sometimes can be many years or even decades, where we're aging. And with other questions, like you mentioned, what type of care, the, hol- the holistic type of care, not just... Um, not just exactly what we life, which life-sustaining methods do we want or not want? Uh, what type of medical uh, facilities are we okay to go to, not okay to go to? And how much, you know, what type of finances should be allocated to each one of these eventualities? But there, there is the what type of end of life uh, do we want? And as people are living longer and longer, this becomes a longer question and it, it can it can be it can have very serious ramifications, and like you said, without having those conversations early on, that's something that you're going to run into. So, what types? If you, let's get specific, let's assume we we are having those conversations. What types of of is this? Is there a particular document that we're signing that discusses not, more than just um, the finances and healthcare decision ability that you're referring to? Or are we talking about just getting on the same page type of thing? Like, what are you referring to specifically if we want to do this? Well, I mean, I have a guide if people want to see it on my uh, website that you can access it as some questions that can be initiated within the family to get to these other things. But -hmm. there is no document in which these things live. I think this should be included in your in your living will, because you're, you're right. Most people just do the will. If they do anything, when I die, this is where I want my things to go, but I don't want to think about if, when I'm alive and if I start needing help and support, what does that look like? But we can create those living wills and in those living wills, we can put in whatever we want. And I would love it if the legal world started to take their documents to another level and start integrating some other things in there. So for example, Maybe there's a family member, a a senior who says, you know, 
if I'm ever ill, I don't want to go into a nursing home. I can't imagine myself living there. I want to be at home. So in my living will, I'm going to include that statement to keep me home as long as possible. I'm going to include in there that I am allotting um, full-time pay for one of my children who needs to quit their job in order to stay home and take care of me or move in with me. I'm allotting my, I'm allowing my children to outfit the home and spend whatever is necessary to do that. So there's all of these other things. I'm going to put in there that my child who lives in Florida, every time my child from Florida wants to visit me, the family can take money from my account and pay for my child to make that trip. Because what happens is when somebody can't make those decisions for themselves or they're having difficulty making decisions, everyone doesn't want to use that person's money to pay for other family members. And in a lot of situations, it's not appropriate but maybe the senior wants that. Maybe the senior wants some of their funds to be used for airfare, to have their grandchildren come and visit as much as possible and pay for the hotel or something mm -hmm. in there that says you can pay for if in case you have to take me to the doc, uh, to the hospital for treatment, every time you have to pay for parking at the hospital, take money from my account, reimburse yourself. That's what I mean about like really in-depth conversations and then taking all of those things and actually adding them to the document. Mm -hmm. Just think about for a moment what type of stresses exist and don't have to exist had some something like that be written out because you'll have one person move into the house because they either don't have a job or they decide on their own to quit their job. They'll take care of the aging parent sometimes for many years. The parent then passes on and they feel like they deserve a bigger portion maybe than everybody else because they were not paid. And the, the child from Florida says, what do you mean? We're equal siblings. We're both children of the same two parents. Why do you get more than I do? That Well, you never can. Well, I couldn't because I had a full-time job and I had my own family to take care of. I'm supporting my children and my married children. And I, I just simply couldn't do it. I couldn't afford to come up. I didn't have the time. Well, dad would have wanted you to. Well, dad didn't write down that I should and I could not afford it. But imagine if that could have all been clearly spoken out. If somebody's willing, like you said, they want to quit their job and move in full time, okay, or X number of dollars to this, X number of dollars to that, so that everything is is clear. It shouldn't be immobilizing. It shouldn't be, again, you know, this is for the the legal teams to figure out how to write this in a way that's not getting in the way, uh, but it's it's actually solving some of these issues. Um, yeah, and, and these are the calls that I get are for these adult children that are fighting with each other over these kinds of issues. And we cannot, we can't ask the, I'll just use the word patient for, for no other word. We can't ask mm -hmm. a patient anymore what he or she would want, you know, and it, all of that tension could have been gone should these things, should these things have been talked about earlier. And really when somebody's ill and needs support, you don't want your family fighting. You want them helping each other and aligned and supporting each other. And this is a really nice gift that people could give their children, um, their adult children, by putting all of this this stuff down. Right. I mean, and to what you mentioned in the beginning of our conversation today, the children want to help equally. You know, it's a very emotional time because, you know, children feel that the, you know, this is their sacred responsibility and duty, which it is to take care of their parents who took care of them, hopefully for many years. And they're all trying to do their best, right? And if we continue the example, you know, the child who lives out of town has their own bag of challenges that they're dealing with. The child who was able to move in had their own life circumstance that they're dealing with. They are siblings, which at the core, they 
do see things somewhat eye to eye. Uh, they they should many times that if things were clear and if there wouldn't have been room for uh, for ambiguity, then probably a lot you know a lot of this could have been avoided. Now, yeah, I know, I'm not so sure ahead. though that every every adult child does want to help. I'm not so sure about that, and I think every child wants typically wants the best interest of their parent served, but they may not have the capacity to help in the same way that their siblings can. Everyone mm -hmm. has a different relationship with the senior. Everyone has their own different, you know, personal struggles that they're going through. And I think that's probably a conversation for another time, but that's where an another like bulk of anger and resentment happen. And there are some ways to work through that by being able to recognize that everybody has strengths and, and skills and trying to divide tasks based on what is comfortable for the person. Um, but not everyone can help in the same way, even if they were both living in the same city. You know, everyone does have their skill set, but that's probably a conversation for, for a different time. Yeah, perhaps, perhaps, but it's true. You know, if everyone steps into their own roles, and it's also their life experiences also, you can bring different yeah. things to the table. Um, you mentioned earlier about the concept of dealing and looking at the person as a complete person. And I know we spoke offline about the concept that sometimes we can look at a patient diagnosis as a body that needs to be dealt with. If there is a fever, then let's figure out which, is it a virus? Is it COVID? Is it something else? Uh, is there you know, dehydration? Is it something more serious? Is it one of the existing uh, sicknesses, illnesses underlying, which unfortunately many seniors have, something else acting up? Is it something from medication? And we look at it from that standpoint and sometimes we don't realize that we're dealing with a full human being who's not just a doctor. Us, many of us, before we're in that situation, we don't view ourselves as our medical charts. If we're healthy and we haven't been to a doctor other than our regular physicals, you know, that's something that's barely even significant. We're thankful for our health, but that's not our life. So how, how, do, how do people who are caring for seniors, you know, sometimes it's a sensitivity that wears off. What is the you know, in your opinion, like the, a better way of looking at this and what was a practical way of, of actually acting in a way that we're caring for the whole person. Yeah. And, and it's not just the diseased focused uh, way of looking at a body, but it's also just the tasks associated with keeping that body clean, keeping that body alive. So it's okay. We need to feed. Okay. We need to transfer. Okay. We need to bathe. And our healthcare systems are set up this way in a lot where that's how people get funded is by these tasks. So that doesn't help. Um, and all of those things are really important. I'm not at all saying that they're not there. They're extremely important. Equally, I would like to see that within all of those interventions, there is some soul care being delivered, some emotional care being delivered, and that even in addition, those kinds of services are provided for people. So by that, I mean, soul care for me is about someone's spirituality. And that doesn't mean religion, although it could mean religion. If the person has a faith, making sure to integrate that faith into that person's life and not just on a weekly basis when the chaplain or the priest is coming into the nursing home or on a monthly basis. I'm talking about on an ongoing basis, creating an environment where that person can, can feel their faith, okay, through music or through readings or, th or through 
you know, feelings, smells, and whatever will bring them back to that time. Um, but there's also other ways to attend to our spirit, you know, what fills us up, what makes us feel whole, what makes us feel like who we are, what makes us lose sense of everything around us and, and feeds us in a way that nothing else does understanding who that person is and providing those things on an ongoing basis. And for the emotional and psychological components, you know, aging is really tough. Um, you start to lose your functions physically. You start to lose your function sometimes of your mind. You become more dependent on people. It's very scary. And people who are aging are afraid. Most of them are afraid. What's going to happen to me? Who's going to be there? Will I be alone? Will I be in pain? I've messed up in my life. Now I don't have contact with my son. I really want to make amends with him. I want to rekindle that relationship. There's so many things that we're processing as we're aging. And so I think that as a healthcare system and healthcare providers, we need to create opportunities for those individuals to go through those psychological processes with the right support, with professionals, and then for those people to help that person come to terms with where they are in their life and their relationships, because they will be happier at the end of their life. They'll be in less pain as well, because a lot of these things will be cleared out of their human vessel. Okay, I mean, very, very well said. And I wish that what you just described is the way that it would actually be. And unfortunately, we both know that many times, especially in an institutional healthcare environment, many times it's just simply not the way that it is. Um, I, yeah, sometimes it's just not physically possible due to extremely, extremely limited resources, but sometimes it's just due to lack of caring, not a lack of caring about the way the system is set up. Like, like you said, even the terms that we use affect our outlook on how we deal with people. So like, you know, patient versus resident, or I know we can, we have to sometimes use a term just for simplicity's sake and neither one is, you know, always works. Uh, but like you said, bathe, transfer, right? We wouldn't say transfer on a regular person, right? Uh, we would say, you know, you want to help them move. You see them as a person. Transfer is for an object, right? You bathe, I don't know. Uh, okay, I don't want to get too crap on the podcast, but all the different ADLs, right? The activities of daily living sometimes can, and like you said, because reimbursement is to that, every place is slightly differently, but to some extent, you know, that is part of the challenge. I know at a point, I tried once to put a little card next to each resident with like five facts about their life. So this person worked in construction, has this type of family, comes from this type of community, did this on vacation, had these hobbies. Very simple. So that when people walking into the room, they can take a quick, even if they never cared for this person before, they can, and within a few seconds, just like you would look at a chart before you go in to deliver a medication. So before you deliver your presence, your human touch, you would have the ability to familiar, familiar yourself with who this person was as a person and who they still are. Now, there's, there's definitely a crossover into their clinical care as well, because you'll understand why this person always falls at 230 in the afternoon, because that's when their job was whatever. That was part of their schedule. There are plenty of things, that, but even if it doesn't, you know, to your point about having this holistic mindset, it could be a completely different thing as opposed to the, you know, the child priest who's being paid to see 70 residents in 60 minutes, 
and or whatever it is. You know, sometimes it's it's just not feasible for them. They have to go in and out of rooms. I've seen someone go into a room where the patient was sleeping, sit down for 10 minutes and leave and sign off that they were there. Uh, it's difficult to understand what type of benefit that had. I'm not saying it's zero, but the point is that having such a, even if we cannot offer the specific services to the full extent that we should, but even such a mindset so that when we are there, you know, could really be so, so effective. But are there any particular things? Let's talk about nursing homes specifically that nursing homes can employ today with their limited resources to help this way of caring more for the, for the whole person. Any particular suggestions that you might have or things that you know that have worked? Well, I love what you're talking about having a card, right? So already you can say, but even just saying this person did this and this person did that, I would be even more specific. So, and you can get the families to help you out if their family members around is, you know, ask Mr. Jones about his fishing trip to New Zealand. So really specific. So that then the worker doesn't even have to say, okay, well, how am I? I don't know anything about fishing, you know, or, you know, oh, I heard you went to New Zealand, you know, and then, oh, yes, my trip in New Zealand. So as the care is being delivered, those ADLs, you can be talking about the fishing trip to New Zealand. So I would be really specific and have a lot of different things. You can have 15 things on there. Ask my dad about this. Ask my mom about this. You can have pictures in the room that relate to those particular topics that, you know, bring that person comfort. Music to me is a pretty inexpensive fix that I think nursing homes can do. I realize that budgets are not the same everywhere, but I don't understand why there is not music playing in every residence's, every residence room and that music is specific to them. So, and I think families, I mean, everyone has technology, can be creating playlists that are meaningful for the person and those can be played in each residence room. To me, maybe it's an initial investment for installing these things, but then after that, you could put it on the family to put together the playlist email us the MP4 and boom, you can have it playing. So to me, that's something. You can use your um, smells, so aromatherapies as well, you know, just buying several bottles of different smells and not only things like lavender and those kinds of scents, but also you could look at things that relate to cooking or smells like woodworking, you know, these kinds of smells, be creative. And when the worker goes in, is armed with whatever particular scent that particular resident reacts to, and it's in an oil-based form or wherever it might be. And the and, and we're using that as we're delivering care. So there's no time taken away from their care. There might just be a few minutes of prepping in advance, grabbing things, but you don't have to take a lot of time. And once the residents in the nursing home invests in all of these things, I, I, I think you could just use them ongoing and it would not cost that much money. Amazing, amazing. Um... I know some people in that industry. I'm trying to think how that might make how they can make that affordable. But even like you said, you, you don't need to like you know. I, I'm putting on my administrator hat for a moment. The second you tell me playlists, so I'm thinking about installing some sort of sound system in each in each room. Uh, what how exactly is it going to look? But you can you can really think of because resources are are so thin and stretched in so many different directions. We're used to working with nothing. So we could use that mindset to create something from nothing. These little MP3 players that you can get for $15 on Amazon. And you could put, you know, you could have a receptionist who has lots of downtime uh, between phone calls and opening up the door for people. Many times it's an unused asset, you know, uh, you know, all that time. And it can be used to set things up like this and, you know, go around and set it up in each resident's room with a little, 
you know, bigger or whatever. It doesn't it? Or they can probably play it from the TV. There's so many says simple, simple ways to do something like that. And the same thing with with scent. It doesn't have to be a expensive machine. Again, if you can afford it, if you're renovating, and even better. But like your example, let's say it smells like a, a construction site. The good smells of a construction site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, the woodworking <laughs> smell. You know, a yeah, nice woodworking. Wood, yeah. Right, yeah. Something like that. You can really bring somebody back. Like we know this from our own experiences. The I forget the exact study, um, but was once shared with me that our scent. We have the longest memory. You know, scent can bring us back to places, literally, and not literally, but in our mind, we can go back, travel to where we we've had that particular scent. So if we have someone who is struggling with dementia. We bring that, and you know, we know that it affects their short-term memory quicker than the long-term memory. And we bring them back to a place that they're used to and they're comfortable and they feel strong. It can affect not just their well-being, the less agitation, you know, less, you know, uh, less medications will be necessary. Um, they won't be throwing their plates at the residents and things like that, which unfortunately happens. They'll be more where they are, you know, and that affects everything. It affects it affects the body as well, and, you know, not just that. And uh, you know, those are some really good practical suggestions. Let me just add to this for a second. And as a nurse, sure. as an administrator, if you put on that hat, if, and I don't know what the laws are in the different states and administration and what you can do with, with private partnerships and things, but, you know, imagine that there are, you know, uh, uh, businesses um, and those that are even related to senior care who may want to advertise to your clientele, so you have them sponsor the purchasing of all the MP3s or whatever it is in 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 exchange for sending in an email out to all of the residents' family members saying this company sponsored. They also have these products. Please check them out. We're so grateful for that. I mean, you can kind of think of some creative ways where you might get some businesses involved to sponsor things. I don't know though what what ethical things that brings up. I'm just kind of speaking at the top of my mind, but it's something to think about. The other thing, thing I wanted to add is that it can give family members, I mean, now in times of COVID, it's, you know, a, a bit more difficult, but once things hopefully mid to end of next year begin to clear up and we have, you know, ongoing visits again with family is let's say you invested in a box of different scents and the families were able to have access to it. And it would give them something to do as well when they go to visit. Because when someone is not responding, family members feel very uncomfortable and they don't feel, they feel like they're being ineffective. Why am I even sitting here? My dad doesn't know my hair. My mom doesn't know I'm here. She doesn't remember. And it would give them something to do as well. You know, so you can kind of create these boxes for family members to check out, bring into the residence room, use the supplies in there, bring them back. I mean, I guess now there's going to be all these hygiene implications <laughs> that you'll have to figure out. But sure, I mean, but you can one of those things. I, we can figure this out. We should talk offline. The businesses now that you gave me ideas for. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyways. But, no, but the truth is, you're right. It, it can give, it can, it's almost like if the family member came, and many times family members will come with tremendous self-sacrifice to be there. Take off a full day of work, which can mean something hundreds of dollars or having to work the weekend or whatever it means, traveling in from far. Then they come there and they sit there and, you know, their family members completely unresponsive to them. They do feel it's very, besides for being sad to watch, very frustrating. They do, like you said, they feel like they're ineffective. But if they can push a magic button that makes their loved one more attentive, a little bit more alert and more likely to engage with them, it, it can really make it a much more of a pleasurable experience. So using using their familiar surroundings, it really means getting into the mind of the resident, but 
using the the music that they used to hearing from the era that they're comfortable with, wherever their mind is, you know, at that particular stage in their in the disease process, if they have dementia, um, and what are the scents that are familiar to them, and maybe some maybe some other things. I, I don't know exactly. You know, we could bring some further. Um, it, could, it could be the furnishing in the room. It could be other things um, that certainly can be effective uh, to bring them back, so that when the person visits. For the visitor's sake, you know, the visitor has legitimate needs as well, like you said. And the more visits the resident has, the better off the resident is, is as and well. And the better off the staff is. It's a win-win because the staff is relieved of some of the responsibility as well, which they need breaks. They're all pretty much overworked. And it also will probably, because it will benefit the residents so much emotionally, the behavior will be easier. Perhaps if there's some challenging symptoms that are coming out, um, perhaps that will improve that as well. And then the staff will benefit when the staff feels better about the resident, the relationship's better. I mean, to me, it's... it's yeah, yeah. That, that being a snowball in a positive way, and sometimes, sometimes these relationships can be strained. I know I don't know what you just said that triggered this scene in my brain, which I will never forget. But we had the Department of Public Health was visiting our facility uh, during their annual survey, and they moved in for a few days. And I'm, I was sitting at the nurses' station, I think, together with a surveyor. When we were usually one or two rooms that you could actually see into, and we saw a family member smack a resident across the face, like right in front of us. I've never seen that since then or before that, but that certainly happened. And there's, there was a, quite a, you know, decades of complicated emotions going on in that interesting twisted relationship. It was the opposite. I'm remembering now the, the child was the resident. The parent was the visitor. It was an interesting situation. The parent would come every single day, rain or shine, to bring donuts and coffee and dote over their child who unfortunately needed nursing home care uh but like that happened right in front of us now had we seen the entire uh had we better understood the relationship we probably could have provided support earlier okay i hope that i hope the department of public health is not listening to this but it's possible that any facility right could have jumped in earlier understood some of the intensity of the relationship some of the intensity of the emotions it's not normal to come every single day, right? It's not necessary even sometimes, or at least for the amount of time that, you know, that the visitor had to stay. But we could have soothed or smoothed out some of the edge from that relationship so that something like that would never have happened. And again, we did what we needed to do to resolve that issue. Um, but I really like what you're saying, that we can do things. You know, you don't need to wait. Like a lot of times... In nursing homes, we get pitched by, at least in the United States, we get pitched by hospice companies, sometimes every week. You know, the staff, sometimes prominence will say, which hospice company should we bring in this week for our free lunch? You know, we're hungry. And they will come at the drop of a hat and pitch because, you know, this is what they do is their business development team. I've, I can't tell you how many times we've heard about the aromatherapy and this therapy, and therapy, which is sometimes wasted on hospice patients. And I don't mean that hospice patients, we shouldn't, give them everything, any possible tool that we have, we should. But it's a waste because why can't we do this 10 years beforehand? Why can't we do this 20 years beforehand? Why can't we give them a quality of life? Yeah, and it's sometimes so frustrating. And sometimes by the time they get it, they don't, they don't know what's going on or we don't see any condition that they do know that they can really appreciate this. And we're hoping that we're 
our efforts are paying off in some way. But imagine the resident, many times they're on hospice. They could have been in their nursing home for 10 years, 15 years. I've had patients, residents like that. Why, why couldn't we do it then? And so, yeah, there's no funds. We have, we have all the answers. But like you said, figure it out. Make this an effort. Make this a focus. Okay, you're just getting me into this. But, but this is, yeah, these are I, really good points you're bringing up. On Saturday, I did an interview with uh, Dr. Daniel Potts. He's an attending neurologist okay, from the VA hospital. And we talked about spirituality and dementia care. And it ended up going to hospice at some point because that's kind of the social work. I did that social work. Uh, job for several years. And I kept saying to him, I don't understand why we have this great way to approach end of life care. Why are we not doing this all the time? Why don't we have full-time chaplains? Why don't we have full-time social workers? I, I don't understand because if people are in less physical pain due to emotional and spiritual healing, we will spend m less money on staff and medications. And actually, if we have to just look at, look at this in a business way, we'll save money in the end by just having, having a social work and a chaplain full time. The money that you would have to, you would save on medication is probably astronomical, you know, not to mention retention of staff and all that kind of things where people feel like they're being more effective and treating the whole person and staff wouldn't leave as much and all that kind of stuff. Anyways, I guess we're probably going off topic, but I'm with you there. I just feel like there's so much we could be doing that we're not, that we're waiting. And why wait? Let's invest on the front end and change the trajectory of our system. Amen. <laughs> you on this. Um, <laughs> exactly. Um, I, I just, I'm just noticing the time. See, we, we blew through our end time like way past. I did not okay, realize no, it. Um, That's all right. But... I mean, this is the, I mean, yeah, this is really something which which is so true. If we can bring that, you know, every hospice company would do what they said. That's you know another conversation um, where we've had hospice companies. I'm not going to tell you all those horror stories. That's definitely going off subject. But assuming that every hospice company does what they say that they're going to do, why can why can we give that quality of life when it could be even enjoyed and be even more uh, beneficial? Now, I think the final point for us to, to discuss in this conversation is there are many interested parties in every senior in providing their care. There's the family member, the resident themselves, the clinical staff uh, within the nursing home. There are There's outside clinical support, whether that's regional support from the company, if it's outside physicians. Uh, there can be social workers, you know, psychologists, therapists, all looking at a piece, if you will, of the overall care of the resident, which can give a very fragmented care plan, although everything will, might be covered and each person could be doing everything you know, correctly. What have you seen or what do you think that, that can work well to get everyone working together as a team, as opposed to each person just looking at their own piece of the puzzle? Well, we need to have open conversations and a multidisciplinary respect for one another, I think. One of the hidden gems that I feel is left out all the time are the nurses' aides, the personal support workers. They're never brought into these team meetings. They're, you know, meanwhile, they're the ones that do all of the work. Not I'm sorry, I'm not trying to minimize what other people do, but they're the ones who spend the most time with that person and really understand what triggers that person. What do they like? What do they don't like? And we exclude that person. So I think we need to start with an overall multidisciplinary respect for all of our colleagues, recognizing that everybody's specialty is equally important 
to someone else's. We also need to have the resident or the patient dictate what that care plan should look like because what we, we may think the person wants or what we may think works may not even be on that person's agenda into what their value system is and what they want. So obviously we need to check in there and make sure that we're in line with what the person wants and that the family member is on board with what that person wants and then do everything we can to meet that person's clearly expressed expectations in a very collaborative way. So, and to, and to be open that some things may work that seem non-traditional, like this physician I was telling you that I spoke with on Saturday. I mean, it's amazing to me how he, like he's an, he's an MD, he's a neurologist, and he says to me of oh, spiritual care in my practice, he says, it seems like it's even more important than any other type of care I can possibly give. He's not giving the spiritual care, but just his education for families mm -hmm. on, on how to help somebody get that. And he says it has more impact on the, on the physical person than anything else. So I think we need to, again, like kind of like re-educate our healthcare professionals that there are holistic ways that we can help to support people so that we can start integrating other things. So it's not just the social worker and the physiotherapist and the doctor and the nurse, but what about someone to come in and do Reiki? Maybe that would work for somebody. You know, what about mm -hmm. someone to come in with hot stones and, and do some sort of massage thing? I mean, we don't know what's going to work for people. And so to kind of be open that there are other ways of doing things and have that respect and the flexibility to allow all sorts of people to come in and try and help support somebody. Amazing. Amazing. I mean, the time is short, uh, so I'm not going to jump onto each one of those points, although we certainly can uh, elaborate further. But one thing you did say is about having the resident present um, when possible. And in my personal experience, when the resident was present, the unspoken and sometimes maybe even spoken message was, you know, the resident was kind of getting in the way. It was like a box that has totally. to be checked. And it's like, if the resident, okay, the resident sleeping, okay, good, so it wasn't available. And now we have our meeting and that problem is not a problem. And it's true, but the residents there, they may completely change everything that we're planning for them, rightfully so, because it doesn't work for them, even though we think that's what they should be doing. And it's really not, not customer-centered. It's not resident-centered. Really, and everything else really goes after that. Having the CNA there, the CNA is the eyes and ears. They know what's going on more than anybody else in the building. No matter what you say, no matter how many years the nurse was, the aide who came a week ago and cared for this patient for many hours knows everything there is to know from a, a patient standpoint. Um, about this resident, and they should be there. And just because they're starting, you know, as a CNA doesn't mean that they're not extremely intelligent and have the ability to weigh in on these conversations. Don't waste their time. They're, they many they genuinely care about the people that they're caring for. They want to get right back to it. But bring bring them into the meeting for when you need them. Get their input, and then allow them to leave so that they don't have to waste their time there. I mean, but, but that is definitely so true. And respecting each other. There's no reason for therapy and nursing to be fighting all the time. There's no reason for, you know, these the doctor-nurse tensions sometimes. And again, they're, 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 these are real challenges that have to be dealt with. But the, to the, the more we can work as a team, and I know it's such a cliche, the more we work as a team with the resident leading the helm when they can, or a family member you know, leading the show, not as, oh, and now is our mandatory time to bring in the residents. So here's what we're doing. Check, check, check. That's okay. Let's take you to bingo. But instead to actually, you know, um, solicit their input 
and take it seriously and consider it at least, you know, that really can change the game. Now, Stephanie, this is, it's really been a pleasure for you coming on here. And now I understand why uh, TV shows and radio shows are chasing you to have you on their programs because you really bring so much to the table. And I'm not just saying that. Um, before we go, I know that you have a new book that was released. Can you tell yep. us about the book, what it's called, and where people can go to about it? Okay, so Plan for Aging Well is the name <laughs> of the book. I assume yeah, it's available on Amazon. It yes. is. It's available on Amazon. I talk a lot about what we were just talking about now in this book. It's it's divided into chapters and the different areas in which aging impacts us, the po pocketbook, our body, our mind, and our soul, um, families, team caregiving, uh, all spirituality, all these kinds of things I talk about in the book. And it's, unfortunately, it's it's the reality of what I've seen. So it's it's a it's an easy read, meaning it's a very fast read. It sounds like it sounds like me talking to you right now. It sounds like we're having coffee. Um, not a textbook. No, not not at all. But it is a hard read in that the realities of what I see when I go into all of these places is not at all what I want for my life and what I wouldn't want for any of you. Not everywhere, but unfortunately, the majority is. I'm more disappointed than I am happy. Uh, when I'm out in the field. And I hate to say that. And I do talk about that a bit in there. So it is a hard read because it's it's scary to see what's out there. But I'm hoping that it kind of pokes somebody in the butt and wakes them up and, and hopefully do more of these conversations and start um, encouraging and inspiring people to change the way that we support that population. Amazing. Well, yeah. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the Nursing Home Podcast. I apologize for going <laughs> a little bit later than I promised, but it was difficult to end this conversation in the middle. Um, for those um, who are, if you want to learn more about Stephanie, uh, where's the best place for them to, for what, what's your website? Where's the best place to send them? And, and say one more time where they can go get the book and what it's called. It's called Plan for Aging Well. You can get it on Amazon. You can find me at my website, which is stephanieerickson.ca. My name is spelled right there. You can see it, stephanieerickson.ca. Links to all my social media are there. Um, I have a, a YouTube channel, which I post a lot of, I produce my own, a lot of videos about the things that I experience and tips and advice and stuff like that, that you can, but the link is on my website as well. And this is available okay. on Amazon. I think I said that. Yeah. Amazing. Yep. So, so go ahead on to over to stephanieerickson.ca as in Canada, right? I think yep, <laughs> you can learn more about Stephanie. In North America. I mean, of course. Um, and to see this episode, uh, this episode will be live on the Nursing Home Podcast in the next couple of weeks. Thankfully, we, we have quite a few that were already recorded waiting to go out. But in the next few weeks, this will be live on the Nursing Home Podcast, as well as all past and future episodes. You can head on over to the nursinghomepod.com. If you would like to be featured on the podcast, you can look me up on LinkedIn, send me a direct message. We can have a conversation about that as well. Stephanie, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And thank you for sharing of your knowledge and your expertise uh, with our listeners. Now that you've enjoyed this episode of the Nursing Home Podcast, I'd really appreciate if you'd rate this podcast and let everyone else know what an amazing resource this is for those wanting to learn anything and everything about the nursing home industry. So head on over to ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. Again, ratethispodcast.com slash nursing home. 
Leave me a review and let the world know what an amazing show this truly is. Thank you so much for listening and make sure to stay tuned and subscribe so you don't miss any other episodes.